0: Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Tara McMullen. She's a writer, a podcaster. She studies small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them. She has a great podcast called What Works, and that's also the title of her brand new book called What Works, A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal-Setting. And I know you hear those words, goal setting, and you think, yeah, we've heard about that before. We're supposed to set goals. We're supposed to try to meet those goals. If we don't meet those goals, we learn from the process of not meeting them, and then we try again. Or we set new goals, we set better goals, we learn, we process, we move on, lather, rinse, repeat, etc." However, Tara has a different approach to goal setting, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is till we get into the conversation, because it's different. And it's helpful and it's less rigid and more flexible and honestly, more helpful for people who have been burned by setting goals in the past and tried to meet them and had them not work out, had it not be met. Or maybe you're a workaholic of some sort, but you just feel like that hustle culture mentality, even if it's just in your own head, isn't working for you. Or at times hasn't worked for you. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm telling you, consider Tara's approach with her framework and see if you can't make some changes to the way you approach goal setting. I had an awesome time talking with Tara. I'm telling you right now, this is a top 10 productivity book in my mind. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Tara McMullen. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Tara McMullen. Tara, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Eric.
0: I'm excited to talk with another... You know what? I would call you a productivity podcaster, even though I don't know that you would maybe say that or claim that (laughs) title. But I would think so, because I have checked out your show. And obviously, you've got a new book coming out, which is why I wanted to have you on. And it's called What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. We have not talked about setting goals on this show for a very long time. But I really know, one, from going through the book and from your background, that this is going to be somewhat of a life-changing – dare I call it that? I think I am. It's going to be a life-changing kind of conversation or at least the start of a, a path for some people, especially when it comes to goal setting. Because not only are you a podcaster, you're a writer, and you study small business owners and what they do, how they work, how they live – all of that in that world. Yet you're also kind of, or have been, and maybe a recovering perfectionist. That's not quite right. I think maybe more of a a driven person. In other words, you've had kind of a toxic relationship in the past with goals. Can you talk a little bit about your background and your relationship with goals that led you to this book?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there are different times in my life when I would certainly identify as a perfectionist and and sometimes absolutely still am. But the way I like to describe my relationship with goals is that I have never met a merit badge or a trophy or an accolade that I didn't want to go out and get. So I am the classic anxious overachiever who is always looking for that next hit of you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, right? And any kind of sort of material or tangible, concrete recognition of my success or my progress is... Just like catnip to me. I just want it, want it, want it, want it, want it. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think that in some ways it's who my parents brought me up to be. I think in a lot of ways it comes very naturally to me. And then as I talk about a lot in the book, I think there's a lot of cultural components to it that have, you know, pushed me in that direction of always being the straight A student, always going after the next milestone on the horizon. But yeah, so the toxic part of it for me is that as someone who has a relationship with goals and merit badges like that, I often would go after that merit badge as an end goal, as the like, when I achieve this, then I'll feel better about myself. When I achieve this, then I will have made it. Life will be easier, whatever the thing might be. And in that process, often short-changed my own critical thinking about what achieving that merit badge would either require from me or might take from me. And so i found myself at different points in my life, and especially since becoming an independent worker, a business owner. Just really off the path that I wanted to be on. I found myself out of alignment with my values. I found myself in relationships that weren't working, or I found myself damaging relationships that I really valued because of my hyper focus on those goals, on the merit badges, on the trophies. You know, I, I talk about in the book as well. I've even been physically injured by these kind of goals, right? Because right around the same time that I started rethinking goals and productivity in my own life and work, I also developed a fitness habit, which has been wonderful. Because fitness is something that is so quantitative, right? I'm a runner, so I can see literally at the end of every run and, and really the whole time I'm running, I can see my pace, I can see my heart rate, I can see how many miles I've gone, that I've developed overuse injuries because I kept pushing toward a particular pace or toward a particular mileage instead of listening to my body or thinking more critically about my training program and you know taking some time off. So yeah, my relationship with goals has always been complicated, but I think the sort of way that I have worked up until the point where I really started questioning that has been a pretty toxic one. I loved goals. I was driven by goals. I wanted to set really big goals. And also those goals had a way of exhausting me, burning me out getting me out of alignment, hurting relationships. And so it was just always this really kind of negative give and take between wanting to go after the goals and also dealing with the repercussions of going after the goals.
0: couple different things here that spring to mind. One is a lot of people can probably identify with what you're describing, your relationship with goals and your drivenness and achieving approach to life that either that's them or they know somebody who is that person and has been maybe hurt by them. Or third slot here, they aren't that, but they feel they have to be that way because that's how the world works.
1: Yeah, I would say there's even a fourth path in there, too, which is people who see those overachievers like me and and like some of the people I talk about in my book, and they think, oh, my God, I never want to be that. (laughs) Like They're willing to buck cultural systems and economic systems and the job market and all of this to just not be so driven by merit badges and trophies and, hey, more power to them. But yeah, I think that we all have sort of a slightly different perspective on the way goals show up in our lives that is very much formed by our experiences in school, our experiences early in life with our families, our experiences in the wider job market and, and, you know, in the world of business, if that's where you find yourself. And those influences start to shape how we think about achievement, how we think about what our shoulds and supposed tos are and then also shape sort of our kind of emotional stance toward those goals. Are goals something that make you feel validated, make you feel recognized, make you feel like you're worthy enough, that you're valuable and useful enough? Or do goals reinforce the ideas that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy, that you're not valuable enough to society? And so I think there's this whole system of influences that shape how we respond to kind of the cultural imperatives for growth and achievement. And it it does, it creates some really interesting patterns among different types of people.
0: And in the book, you talk about all of that. We talk about how we've gotten to this point and you know, beside the fact that we are in this age where, for the most part, the most of us don't feel like we've got a lack. We've got more. We've got prosperity. We've got enough. And yet we feel like we've got to constantly not only aim for more, but achieve more. And it's kind of this new standard. And actually, in the book, I remember in the beginning, you kind of talk about this kind of Backlash that you got when you were young and skipped a grade in school (laughs) and the way people treated you. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was just, uh, that was a wild personal experience, like way too young to be able to process what was happening at the time. But essentially, I, yes, I skipped a grade and skipping a grade put me into junior high school a year early. So technically, I was in a different school, but all of the kids I was going to school with knew that I was not in the grade that I was supposed to be in. And yet the administrators had said, Hey, don't tell people that you skip a grade. Like, let's just keep it on the DL. They didn't say it that way, but that's what, that's what <laughs> they meant. But it was so silly because everybody saw me as the girl that skipped a grade. And that's how people referred to me in seventh grade. And at the same time, it was, you know, I'd get these questions, are you smart or something, you know, or how smart are you? And it was a way I see now of kind of separating me, alienating me from the rest of the group, right? Because that's not a thing you're supposed to do. So sometimes, as you said, that achievement process creates a backlash that leads to feeling like, Well, I might be really smart, but I'm not good enough in all of these other ways, or I don't belong anymore. Now it's obvious that I'm not like other people. And so that puts you into a a sort of a, a deficit of validation and worthiness too, which then just leads to more achievement behavior to try and get it back. And it's a nasty cycle. But yeah, that was a wild time. And it's still something that I look back on. And I'm like, I don't know that I've still fully processed what all went down then.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, we write books to kind of have all our therapy sessions in public.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Let's set the context here. I think the one other thing I want to ask is, Obviously, you've struggled with this you've you've wrestled with this. a better way to put it is maybe you'd bristled at the external expectation. Meanwhile, all along it kind of resonated with your internal kind of achievement drive that you naturally have. but you thought there's just something that doesn't feel right that you're pursuing things, you're you're setting goals, trying to achieve them, but this can't be the way this works. What was the moment where you thought, no, you know what I'm gonna start to. Externally voice this concern or wrestle with this in public?
1: Oh, that is such a good question. I would say that it was about five years ago at this point And I had, I've, <laughs> speaking of therapists, I have uncovered the pattern in my life that about every five years I go through a cycle of burnout and depression. And I was at the, the, sort of in the middle at the peak of one of those cycles where I was emotionally exhausted, I was physically exhausted, I was feeling really down on myself, even though I'd achieved things that I just had not even dreamed of when I was in my early 20s or in my teenage years. And so I started to think about, is this really working for me? How have I organized and kind of structured my life? That maybe is kind of creating the situation in which I keep burning out or when I keep thinking, I don't know if this is the way I want to live my life and then, you know, go quickly find a replacement for it that leads to another cycle of burnout. So I think with the end of 2016, early 2017, I started really kind of chewing on whether the smart goals and the productivity tips and the, you know, just the, all of the, the stuff that we learn to do as workers and creators, whether that was actually good for me and whether it worked with my individual temperament. And I started talking about it, not quite in public, but I started talking about it a bit with some mastermind groups that I was running at the time. And I found people really wanted to hear more. (laughs) They wanted to hear more about, well, you know, if you're not setting SMART goals, if you're not doing this, if you're not doing that, what are you doing? How is this working for you? And, And how are you approaching things? then by the end of that year, maybe beginning of 2018, I felt that I had gotten to a place where, okay, I have more of a system. I've definitely processed some of the cultural baggage around these things. I've started to identify the negative patterns that I'm trying to cope with, with goal setting and, and productivity stuff. And then by the end of that year, so it took me quite a while, I kind of put it out in public for the first time and I found that people were desperate for an alternative to either kind of hustle culture that sort of entrepreneurial ambition girl boss culture or sort of a productivity nihilism as Charlie Gilkey just put it to me today (laughs) that sort of backlash against like, no, I'm not going to set goals. I'm not going to be productive. I'm just going to do, you know, go with the flow and and be my own person. Like there's got to be a middle way. There's got to be a a place where we can say, yes, I want to grow. I want to be ambitious. I have big ideas. And... I want to approach them humanely. And I want to approach them with my whole identity. And I want to examine the ways in which I have real limitations and real difficulty accessing resources in different ways. And that, it seemed like exactly what people were looking for. Just even the possibility that that was a way that you could structure your life. And I think that You know, in that process of kind of taking the this work, this process public, I learned a lot about how other people related to goals. And we've talked about some of this already, so I won't spend too much time there. But, you know, just thinking through like... How people receive the messages that are so prevalent in hustle culture and, you know, advice culture, how people kind of set aside their own values or their own ways of working, their own ways of doing and being in order to try the latest piece of software, try the latest system for getting more done in a day. And all of that feedback sort of continued to drive me thinking about, well, how far can we take this? It's not just a system for goal setting. It's not just a productivity system. It's not just a planning system. What is the overall kind of philosophy behind this process? And so that feedback and that response was was really huge for me because it served as sort of that initial bed of research that I really needed to take the process even further. So I'm not sure that I answered your question, but that's where I ended
0: up <laughs> well and and it may be hard to pinpoint no, that's the moment I knew I must write this book no it's it may yeah. not be that simple it's a progression, and in fact, that kind of shows that that's what it's supposed to be in, in in a way that's what you're talking about here it's it's yeah. it's not being part of hustle culture and it's not being part of productivity nihilism in a way i didn't have the clarity to say this back then when i started the show but that's why i wanted to start the show it's why mm. the title is beyond the to-do list. It's to be able to have that be a very broad topical availability to me and and being able to create lots of episodes about things. But it's also that other side of that phraseology where it's, no, we're moving beyond the to-do list and we're going to actually talk about what it really means to do the right things. And like you say in the book, separating the who you are from the what you do.
1: Yeah. So that. That was a very pivotal moment for me. So I was at the gym. I was listening to podcasts as I do. I can remember it, the exact spot I was in the gym. I can remember, you know, what I was doing, how the mat felt under my fingers. And I was listening to Jocelyn K. Gly's Hurry Slowly podcast. And the episode was all about this question that a healer asked her. And it was simply, who are you without the doing? And kind of felt my blood run cold in that moment. It's like, I have no idea who I am without the doing. Is there a person that's not the doing? And I stopped listening right then and didn't pick the podcast up again for years because I could not answer that question. And at first it was sort of an individual, introspective kind of look at like, all right, who am I? Who Like, how would I even talk about myself if I'm not talking about writing or podcasting or working out or running. I just felt so stuck. Like I didn't even know how to talk about what I was thinking about. But when I finally started talking with other people about it, I realized that, you know, while other people might have a, a clear sense of who they are without the doing, it's also the sort of very open-ended Question and, and today I kind of think of the question almost like a koan, right? Like, so a question that leads to contemplation, but there is no answer. And so for me, that question has been this constant companion of thinking about, well, who am I without the doing? Who am I when I'm not a writer? Who am I when I'm not a podcaster? Who am I when I'm not a runner? What does it mean even to be a person a being without those things and so one of the concepts in in just doing research around the subject that i came across that i really really love is this idea of the network self and this is an idea from a philosopher named kathleen wallace and she talks about you know how sort of original conceptions of the self were either a sort of psychological constant where you know, your mind is your mind from birth to death. And that's, that is yourself. There's also the the more biological, you are an organism and that organism is yourself. But Kathleen Wallace's idea is that we actually are a mix of identities, that we have layers and layers and layers of identity. And some of those identities absolutely have to do with the things that we do right. The work that we do, the hobbies that we have, just the things that we enjoy doing. And other of those identities have to do with our relationships. So, you know, I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. Those relationships kind of create these identities for me. And then there's also just the things that are unique to me or different to me than, you know, most other people. So, you know, I'm, I have an identity of being an autistic person. I have an identity of being left-handed. That's really important to me. You know, I have an identity of all these things that are specific to me and my lived experience internally and that my conception of self isn't one thing, but in. In fact is all of these things networked together and the different ways that they play nicely or sometimes not play nicely together that's who makes up me and when i started to kind of incorporate that idea into the way i thought about the question who are you without the doing i found it just super liberating because i could be all of these different things i wasn't looking for the one authentic self i was looking for all of my different layers of identity and how those different things influenced or um, shaped the way I showed up in the world and the, the relationship that I had with myself. And that allowed me a much more expansive way of thinking about my work, thinking about what I want out of life and thinking about what achievement so much as I maybe still hang on to that a little bit, what achievement looked like for that networked self as opposed to the doing self that always has to be climbing a ladder.
0: Yeah. And for me, I had never heard of this philosopher or this approach, and it was kind of enlightening to me. And I I really want to encourage everybody once they have the book to dig in deep on this part, because I think it's really helpful, even as somebody who has thought a lot about and done work with like the Enneagram and other personality typing systems that each turn the, you know, the object of yourself to a different angle and let you look at it a little bit differently Mm
1: -hmm.
0: by doing this and having this network self. It allows you to not hold all of your worth on any one of them, but on, say, all of them. And that that's a way to kind of exit out of what you call the, the validation spiral, where we get looped into yeah. this never-ending cycle of the doing is who I am.
1: Yeah, the doing is who I am and the doing is... What makes me worthy of relationships makes me worthy of existing. Right. I think especially, you know, as a woman, but anyone holding any kind of marginalized identity in this world, you know, there's we get all of these messages about having to prove ourselves. And I, I think, you know, the message to prove ourselves is universal. That's a message of capitalism, right? And of meritocracy, you have to prove that you can move up the ladder, that you can be a valuable part of society. And so we tend, as you say, to kind of latch on to certain identities and use the external validation to support the way we see ourselves as those identities, you know, so we end up saying yes to responsibilities and tasks and goals that reinforce that particular identity, but often at the expense of other identities, right? So I certainly have an identity as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. And if all I focus on is validation for that. That particular identity, I'm probably going to miss the, or I'm going to, to work against my identities as a feminist, as a creator, as you know, someone who loves to just really think deeply about ideas. And I'm just going to chase money or chase business growth, which that's sort of the, the genesis of this whole thing in the first place. And yeah, and then that just creates a cycle where our resources become more and more depleted. And it really creates a sense of self-alienation where you just feel like, you know, that one identity has been sort of cleaved off of the other identities and you're just that. And the, the whole rest of you is sort of waiting for you to remember that it's there. And that's just, it's a really... Unsatisfying kind of internal experience.
0: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. Once you've wrestled with this, though, I think people can agree, there's a lot of different wrestling that can happen with this, where it comes to self-awareness, it comes to knowing yourself. But then it's like, okay, but I still need to, air quotes, get things done. So how does this tie into setting goals and then actually achieving them? What's the perspective shift there? And I think before we go to that place of talking about what you talk about with practice and process, and in fact, in the book, that doesn't come till after the part I want to talk about first, which is understanding our capacity. And I love this because Mm -hmm. this is something I have heard from listeners specifically about in the past that, well, I am not a business owner. I am not a this or I am not a that. Again, we could go to all those network selves and list them all off, but I am not most of those things. Mine are different. I'm not going to say that what I do doesn't matter, but I'm not in charge of a lot of things. I'm just trying to make sure my household and my day job and my relationships function and my capacity is smaller than somebody else's.
1: Yeah. I think understanding, well, I I can't say that I understand capacity, but the shift in perspective on how much I can get done and what I even just the tasks or projects that I can get done that I have the resources for has been absolutely huge for me, both in kind of like a intellectual, existential way, but also on a logistical, day to day basis. So when I talk about capacity, what I'm really talking about is our access to resources and resources are anything from like time, money, skills, emotional bandwidth, mental bandwidth. And there's a lot of variation in our access to those things. For some people, they have tons of time, but no money. Actually, I don't know many people that have that particular makeup, but it's it's a possibility, right? Other people have lots of money and absolutely no time. Some people are very strained with both time and money, but maybe they have an incredible skill. They have an incredible network of people around them. We all have this different sort of set of resources that are available to us. And that set of resources gets allocated across all of the work that we do, all of the places that we need to expend energy. So that's at home, it's at work, it's in your life with yourself. Uh, It's in your intimate relationships. And the more we sort of commit to kind of commit our resources to, the fewer resources we have to go around. And so one of the big perspective shifts that I had in thinking about capacity was recognizing that I have very little access to some Of the resources that are needed in my day-to-day life, in my day-to-day work. So one of those things is emotional bandwidth. For me, you know, talking to people, not so much podcast interviews, but you know, doing client sessions, having a coffee date, whatever it might be, those times are very emotionally draining for me. So, you know, and and for my husband. They are absolutely not. So for my husband, the cost of that hour is just one hour of time. For me, it costs me the hour and it costs me a level of relational functioning that I won't get back for the rest of that day. It uses me up in that area. And so one of the things that I've had to realize about my own capacity is that limitation. And what does it look like? To What does my business need to look like? What does my relationship need to look like? All of these things. If I limit the availability I have to expend that resource. So for me specifically, that looks like, what does it look like to have absolutely no more than five calls in a week? How does my way of working, how does my business, how do my expectations need to shift? If that's the capacity limit I'm going to put on emotional bandwidth, During my work week. And so that's a hard stop for me. You know, the calendar won't allow more events than that to get scheduled. One of the awesomest benefits of automatic scheduling is the ability to limit things in that way. And so I put those hard limits on. I put soft limits on the same thing, right? Because it's not just my automated scheduler that's, you know, cutting me off. I have to cut myself off. And so just being able to recognize, no, I, can't. I do not have the resources to be on the phone more than five hours a week or to be on Zoom more than five hours a week. That's a hard line for me. And I think that for as much as we know, you know, that we work too much, we work too hard, we're constantly go, 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 going. We know all that and we still think we're invincible. We still think we have unlimited capacity. And so for me, that perspective shift with capacity has been saying, no, no, I don't. I have a limited budget and it's my job to allocate that budget toward the things that are most important to me and that are most important to the functioning of my life. And beyond that, I don't have the capacity for them. I'm not going to go after them. I can't, unless I'm willing to give something else up or unless I'm willing to go out and source new resources from somewhere, You know, because sometimes that's possible, like with skills or with knowledge or even with money, unless I'm willing to do that, I simply do not have what it takes to add something else into my workload, onto my schedule. So that has been hugely helpful in just being able to say no to people and no to ideas and no to projects. Yeah, I mean, I can talk all day about capacity and resources, but hopefully that kind of gives you the overview on how that thinking for me has really shifted.
0: This is one of my favorite parts of the book as well, because you in a way in the book are so much more clear and concise with your language on something that honestly I've been trying to wrestle with having the right guest or shoot at it from the right angle for years now. And you came along and just basically spelled it out and, and you do it even better than you just did it. Like in the book, you do it so clearly and so well (laughs) that I, you know, I'm just like, I, you know, there's bookmark pages there and it's just like, okay, perfect. And again, to address the capacity topic after having talked about, Identity and deconstructing, you know, what we've believed in the past or what we've been told to believe about achievement and goals. It's just like music to my ears. And then you get into your actual process. One of the words being actually the word process. But before we get to that word, I want to talk about the other one that comes before that, which is practice. So what do you mean by practice?
1: yeah so I draw the distinction in the book between practice orientation and achievement orientation I think we all know what achievement orientation is either again we're very much identifying as achievement oriented people or we're probably to one degree or another saying achievement orientation or achievement oriented no that is not me I I don't care right and so but but it's like a very familiar way we have of building Building the scaffolding for our lives. I'm going to build up these different layers of achievement. I'm going to hit all these different milestones, and then I will know that I am okay, right? That was my default operating mode for the first 36 or so years of my life. (laughs) But when I sort of stepped back from the goal setting and the, the relentless push toward the next thing... I realized that a different way I could approach my work was through the concept of practice. And, you know, for anyone who is a yoga practitioner out there, you're probably familiar with the idea of of your yoga practice, right? Or if you do meditation, you have a meditation practice. And this is practice not in terms of practice makes perfect, because it doesn't, but in terms of Having a routine, having a habit, having a way of being present in whatever it is that you're doing in the moment and coming back and doing the same thing the next day and the next day after that and the next day after that. So this sort of separation or difference between practice orientation and achievement orientation is what if you start building out your plans your business plans, your work plans, your family plans around practice instead of achievement, around being present, showing up in a particular way, doing a particular thing every day. How would that shift your sense of satisfaction? How would it shift the actual things that you do? And how would it shift your kind of approach your your relationship to growth, to yourself. For me, it's been a hundred percent transformational. I used to be sort of a, a kind of productivity sprinter, right? Like I would go out of the blocks super hard and I could bang something out so fast. Like I've had people say to me, okay, Terry, you say this is gonna take you about an hour. Is that an hour of normal people's time or is that an hour of Terra time, <laughs> right? And th- so that was how I used to be. Now I still work pretty fast, but I don't ever sprint. I never sprint anymore. Now it's marathon pace, All the time right even it's slower than that it's long run pace all the time and so it's you know for the podcast it's what is the practice of podcasting look like how do i keep it even and present and satisfying every single day when i sit down to work on the podcast what does my relationship look like when I'm not just thinking about the next achievement, which might be, you know, it might be getting married. It might be taking a vacation. It might be, you know, whatever that next thing is that I'm trying to go out and get in regards to my relationship. What is a practice around that look like? What does showing up at a certain time of day or in a certain kind of way every single time I show up in that relationship with that sense of, you know, the way I want to be the person I want to be in that relationship, and just being very present and aware of what's happening in that moment. For me, I would say that I am more productive today than I've ever been, because I'm more consistent, because I orient my whole life and work around this idea of practice. And I'm also more satisfied with the work that I do. The work that I do is of higher quality. My life is a better quality than it used to be. I feel better about myself most days than I used to. And so not only am I getting more done, I'm getting more of the right stuff done and I'm feeling better about it. I have a better relationship to it. And I mean you used the word life-changing earlier and I am not one to like be extravagant with my claims but for me that has been truly life-changing and I know that my husband for one would certainly mark a before and after in terms of my mental state, in terms of the way that I work, you know, in the before with achievement orientation and the after with practice orientation.
0: I love that. Again, this is the first time I've really... Heard about this, thought about this, and I think it's going to live on in my brain for a long time as I seek to incorporate pieces of this. But again, it's it's like you're saying something that I'd already had a small awareness of, but not the words to say it out loud or something along those lines. I, again, I, I don't even have the words to describe not being able to describe it, right? So. Uh, <laughs> But it's interesting when you said like a yoga practice or a meditation practice, it starts to click a little bit for people. And other people may even think, well, can I substitute the word workflow? Maybe, but I don't know that I would do that because workflow sounds a bit Arbitrary and lockstep. And, you know, I know a lot of people are like, uh, these are the productivity nihilist people. I'm glad you, I, I'd never yeah. heard that term before, but I love it. And the people that are like, uh, productivity, it boxes me in so much. It's too much structure. I just, I need freedom. I can't use a system. I, you know, people that bristle against David Allen's getting things done and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that's those people. And yet they're not entirely wrong. And I try to acknowledge that. But say, but, you know, you could come swing the pendulum this way a little bit. And so I'm really hoping that people hear this, not just the word, but the the ethos and the, the ability to adopt practice across not just their work life, but their whole life. Yeah. It's
1: funny that you, that you bring up the productivity nihilists again here because I think that the moment I knew that I was onto something with sharing this work and like, and talking to people about this in different ways was when my friend Kate Strathman, who's an Enneagram for hates structure, hates to be, you know, hemmed in by any kind of list or process. She said, this is helping me get organized. This is helping me do more of the things that I want to do. And I was like, oh, wow. Well, if it's working for you, <laughs> uh, I feel pretty good about putting this out into the world. Sometimes the concept of practice, I think, can feel equally like a constraint. To some people, it can feel equally like a workflow. But as you said, it, it's not just what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. It is the ethos behind it. It's the philosophy behind it. And so that presence piece, connecting everything in the practice to why you are doing it and how you are doing it and just enjoying doing what you're doing. And I know that sounds like so fluffy, but for me, who is not a fluffy person at all, it really works and it has really worked for transforming my relationship in my own work to all of the parts of my work that I don't love right like I don't love answering email I don't love doing administrative things I don't love any of that stuff but I decided in this process that I didn't want to outsource it anymore I wanted to embrace it as a practice and so for me now I approach those tasks from a completely different Perspective so that they're more likely to get done. I'm less likely to hate doing them. And I feel really good about just the practice of going into my inbox once or twice a day, of running, you know, through my bookkeeping reports or whatever, you know, whatever it is that I've got on my list that I don't love, just approaching it from that practice perspective has completely changed my relationship to that.
0: There's so much more in the book and I know we're running short on time here. I do want to say that the couple of the things you touch on are behavior change and approaching, you know, self sabotage and follow through, all things that you would naturally would need to be talking about in terms of setting goals and achieving them. And I think the, the one other thing I want to touch on here real quick is just you've also got this word process. And if you could touch on that just briefly, I'd love to kind of tie a bow on this.
1: So process for me is an understanding of what all is involved in the work that's being done. I think another thing that's really common in an achievement-oriented shoulds and supposed tos sort of system is that the work is kind of this alienated task on a list. It's like, I'm doing this thing now, and then I've got to do this thing, and then I've got to do that thing. For me, process is really about understanding how any given task fits into its greater whole, how any given responsibility fits into the sort of larger identity around that or the larger system in my life, and recognizing that as I go through the pieces of individual, you know, discrete tasks that I'm impacting an overall process. So I'm impacting the overall process of my podcast. I'm impacting the overall process of my relationship with my husband. I'm impacting the overall process of any of the different systems at work in my life or in my work and kind of embracing that piece of it and recognizing how, you know, doing this thing today makes the next thing easier tomorrow, or it impacts this other component of the process in a positive way. It's allowed more of the work to be more meaningful, more related to purpose and values. And so in that process has become more satisfying as well. So that at the end of the day, whether I've gotten everything done, I thought I was going to get done. I feel satisfied with the work that I've put into it or I feel satisfied at the end of the day that, you know, whether it was a good day or a bad day, whether it was a high productivity or a low productivity day, I feel satisfied by the way I showed up in the process and in the practice so that I can go to bed with a sense of completion or of readiness for the next day as opposed to that sort of sense of lack or deficit that can often crop up when we're focused on to-do lists and when we're focused on these hyper-specific achievement-oriented goals.
0: See, and that right there is that, that feeling of satisfaction, that feeling of rewardment, regardless of how productive a day it was, that is a very, very elusive feeling, one that I've felt very rarely, but have come to again going through this. And I remember I said, oh, well, it's a life changing book. And I know you said your husband could definitely identify a before and after for you. I think what I really mean is this could be a degree course correction starting right now that ends up taking people to a much better place than they were headed towards.
1: I mean, I, I hope that is what happens for people. Um, <laughs> that would make me so, so happy to have that kind of, of impact. That's exactly what has happened for me. And it was exactly why I needed to to share it with more people.
0: There's also a whole section in the book that we will not touch right now, which is great because it means there's more for people to dive into all about projects and project Mm -hmm. briefs and how to start them, what the scope of them should be and what the outcome should be. And again, all of that is going to be different now because you've walked through all the different steps of, again, identity and capacity and practice and much more. And again, stuff I mentioned earlier, like behavior change and where we get into the messy stuff of self-sabotage and everything. But it's such a good book. I, I really want people to go grab it Let's point people towards where they can find out, one, more about you, two, more about your podcast, and then three, where to grab the book.
1: Sure. Well, you can find out more about the podcast wherever you're listening to be on the to-do list. It is also called What Works. The book, again, is called What Works. And you can find that at explorewhatworks.com slash book. Book. Yes. Explorewhatworks.com slash book book. And there's links there to Amazon, Target, Bookshop, your independent bookseller, wherever you find books, you can find What Works. And then explorewhatworks.com is where to find me, sign up for What Works Weekly, my newsletter, and just continue to dig into the themes around the book and and this conversation today.
0: Awesome. Tara, it's been... Awesome talking with you. I definitely know you'll be back at some point on the show. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Eric. This was so much fun. Thank you.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Tara McMullen like I did. Her book is amazing. You need to grab it. You can find the link in the show notes. You can find the show notes at list.com. And I really do think this is a different enough approach on goal setting that it was refreshing. It felt easy to understand. It accommodates people that aren't high achievers, although she is one and geared it towards that. It definitely feels like a holistic approach to goal setting, which I think is different than I've ever heard before. And again, I highly suggest this. This is a great book to grab now, kind of soak up into your brain and then use as we head into the new year. If you found this conversation helpful, would you do me that favor and someone else that favor of sharing this episode with them? Just hit share in that podcast player app of choice, wherever you're listening to this right now. Let them know you were thinking of them and why you were thinking of them and how this can help them. And also, you can grab short cast episodes of Beyond the To-Do List from Blinkist over at List.com slash Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Or if you can't remember that link, it's in the show notes for this episode. You can check those out. It's 7 to 10 minutes, the essence of the podcast, introed and transitioned by me in partnership with Blinkist. You're going to love it. Go check it out. Thanks for sharing this episode. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next episode.